Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Coming up, we'll recap the news that shook state government this week, the indictment of former Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan. We'll also talk with a black principal at a mostly white school. He's using his experiences to help students better understand racial issues. The war in Ukraine continues. We'll speak with a Ukrainian student here in Illinois. We have this feeling of guilt here. People, all Ukrainians who are abroad, people who even get to safer place, places, they feel sorry and they, they post on social media, I'm sorry I'm not with you. We hear from a songwriter whose art crosses different languages and a way to raise food closer to people and in an organic way. So what's the problem? It still has a large carbon footprint. Those stories and more this hour on Statewide. Welcome to Statewide, I'm Sean Crawford. Ahead this hour, a Ukrainian student attending school in Illinois shares her perspective on the situation in her homeland. We'll also discuss the former Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan. He was indicted this week on federal racketeering and bribery charges. And we'll continue our look at lead in water and some services available for kids with lead poisoning. Those stories and more are on the way. February was Black History Month, but how are schools teaching black history beyond the key figures in textbooks? It's a question Marcus Beeland thinks about as principal of Huntley High School in Chicago's far northwest suburbs. Beeland is black. Most of his students are white. He was part of the Black History Curriculum Task Force for the Illinois State Board of Education. He says he wants students to connect history with what's happening around them, and sometimes that means he's part of the lesson. Suzanne spoke with Beelan. You're in a district where the diversity is growing, but but the student population is predominantly white. So what does Black History Month look like at your school? Sometimes you are part of the lesson. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, I, I have the fortunate ability of being able to share some of my lived experiences uh, growing up as, a, as a, a black boy on the south side of Chicago. And there were some lived experiences that I, I went through. There were some challenges that I faced with race personally. And while it's not to go into a classroom and specifically teach them one way or the other what they should think or what they shouldn't think, it's giving them a different perspective. The students here at Huntley High School have not had a black principal, a black leader, And so being able to share my story um, and be able to inspire them and give them a different perspective is is what I'm going to use. For me, even being here, it was culture shock for me being a principal, right? Coming into a predominantly white school and being able to lead people naturally when race comes about are going to look for some guidance. And so I listen to their stories and listen to their perspective to see where they're coming from, but try to find the moments in which they can challenge me and I can also challenge them. So being able to to pop into a classroom and engage in conversation with them uh, and teach has been has been fun. It's been great to be connected to that work, but also a critical moment in which I want to make sure we utilize opportunities that they could potentially face when they leave Huntley High School and how they should handle it and help coach them through that. Talk about, you know, the difference of hearing the experience of their own principal versus something that they might just read in a textbook. Yeah. And and that that's critical for me because if if I gave you just the bullet points of I was a black male growing up on the south side of Chicago, 
you know, taking public transportation to school some days, walking to school. People could draw on, one, what they think of Chicago, two, what they think of Chicago right now and the landscape of violence and things like that and begin to craft their own story. And that was not something that I I came from, right? Like, I came from a very... um, uh, positive upbringing. Like I had a family that's deeply rooted in education uh, that I didn't come from like a bunch of money, but I also a middle class home, right? Like my story is not that unique of I came from the slums of Chicago and I'm look at where I am now. And that's not the story in which I want our young people to always think we need to gravitate toward. And again, sharing those Sharing those lived experiences gives them the perspective that I wasn't immune to just because of my upbringing. I wasn't immune to what is taking place in the city, but it it affected me and impacted me a little bit differently. Yeah, those are definitely important lessons that, um, you know, you, you might not find in the classroom every day. And I'm wondering, how has it resonated with students to hear from you, your experience? Last week, I was just in an English classroom of seniors and, you know, seniors, they've hit senioritis. They're like graduation. They got a countdown going. They are ready. They're thinking about prom. And to sit and have some open dialogue for them to be able to hear from me, the bell rang and we didn't even realize, like, it's time to go to the next class. Not the next class. This was actually dismissal. And typically seniors are like, they're booking it to the to the parking lot. And they were sitting there like, we want more. And they want me to come back. And I actually want to go back because just – the interactions that I had with them and the questions that they were asking were were awesome, but they were experiences that they would never be able to hear or learn about growing up in the suburbs of Chicago out in Huntley. You know, this is this is a vehicle in which I'm able to expose them to something a little bit beyond the classroom and even beyond the text in which they may be sitting in front of. That's Principal Marcus Bielan of Huntley High School, and he spoke with Susie on. Like many states, Illinois has turned to tutoring to help students catch up after a year of remote schooling. Illinois State University professor Christy Borders directs the Illinois Tutoring Initiative, and she says it's picking up speed. We went from like having one or two districts to having, you know, 20-some districts. Universities like Illinois State are working through agreements with districts. The universities will hire and send out tutors to the districts three times a week. The schools will select which students need most tutoring. The state hopes to launch the initiative with 48 districts by this summer and 90 by the fall. The state is paying for the program with federal COVID relief dollars. A graduate student at SIU Carbondale has a unique perspective on the Russian attack on Ukraine. Jennifer Fuller with WSIU has this report. Diana Butsko is from Kyiv. She's a former journalist getting her master's degree in political science at SIUC. She says the last week has been heart-wrenching and remembers vividly calling family and friends as she watched the Russian invasion begin. I started panicking. My first thought was just, I need to wake up my sister. It was 5 a.m. in Kyiv, in Ukraine. I, I, I was calling her, I was calling her boyfriend, please pick it up. They didn't pick it up, they didn't pick up. Uh, but then she messaged me, I saw your message, you were right all the time. We are packing our stuff and trying to go to a bombshell, to the subway, which people uh, in Kiev use uh, as a bombshell. Butsko had already been following the events in and around her home in Ukraine, warning people she loved that there was danger on the horizon. But she says she was frustrated when they told her they didn't believe the attack would happen. She says they didn't know what they didn't know. I was expecting that because I was following American media and American media had 
a very different image again than Ukrainian, because Ukrainian media also had uh, there are things to do. They need they needed to calm down people because if that panic started a month ago, can you imagine what what would happen? Now she spends her time on social media, communicating with people across the world about what she's seeing and hearing in the United States, and sharing stories of people who are seeking shelter anywhere they can find it. They're stories of her sister, who has an eight-month-old baby, and her cousin, who also has a small child, but is torn between crossing the border or staying with her disabled husband. There's despair, she says, along with a resolve to fight against the Russian invasion. She also says there's a wide range of emotion among those who've left Ukraine. There is such a feeling of guilt. We have this feeling of guilt here, people, all Ukrainians who are abroad, people who even get to safer place, places, they feel sorry and they they post on social media, I'm sorry I'm not with you, my, my dear friends, I'm, I feel sorry. And this, we all, all, I think all Ukrainians who are not in Kiev right now, they feel sorry, they have this field of guilt, but sometimes, like, if you're a mother, the first uh, instinct you have is to protect your child. So a lot of my friends, yes, they made this decision to leave, but it's not the decision, like, I came to the safe place and now I'm happy. And now I know a lot of them, a lot of them feeling bad. A lot of them is not comfortable with making this decision. Butsko is working on raising awareness. She says more people in this part of the world need to understand that Ukraine is not so different and is really not so far away. She says her people are strong and resilient, but they need help. We are also that kind of nations that believe in civil society, that also believe that the world begins with you, meaning that you can change the world. And we don't, inspe- we don't expect when other countries come and save us, we do our best. As a journalist by training, Butsko says she feels obligated to tell people's stories and give others information on how they can help. Please stay updated. Uh, if you have a chance, follow news, follow Ukrainians on social media. I am also glad to share with you uh, many, maybe any contacts of my friends uh, and spread the word. Uh, Russia is doing a lot to spread its propaganda. Please uh, read media, trusted media, and spread the truth. And she says many people back home in Ukraine feel alone. She sends the messages that she finds here in the United States, messages of support and encouragement, and says that helps boost their spirits when things look bleak. But there's disappointment, too. She says it hurts to hear people say the U.S. should stay out of the conflict. There is no yours or not your or my war. It's war going uh, in, in the world and you can't pretend you don't see it. You can't pretend it, it, it has nothing to do with you. You can't. Because if Ukraine fails, the next target will be a NATO country. And then you can't just pretend it's not your war anymore. Butsko says she also doesn't understand why Ukraine has to be a buffer between Russia and the West. She hopes that in the coming days and weeks, things will change. It's not the fight for our land, make no mistake. It's the fight for democracy, for free world. It's fight for freedom. It's fight for Western liberalism. And we can't fight alone. I think Ukrainian people are doing a very great job right now. But it was it has been a week. And I'm afraid it, we can't stand for so long. We can't protect and defend all the world alone. 
For now, she says, she believes the people of Ukraine will continue their fight, and she intends to help any way she can, even from far away. I'm Jennifer Fuller. A rally in support of Ukraine was held on the SIUC campus on Thursday. The war in Ukraine is creating anxiety for parents to sort through with their kids. Experts in child psychology say it's best to offer comfort when discussing tough topics at home. Claire Lane tells us more. Keeping kids informed is important. Doing so without frightening them is a fine line. Dr. Munther Barakat is a clinical psychologist at Advocate Aurora Health. He says it's important to offer children a sense of security when answering their questions. Really reassure their safety and and let them lead the way with what information they may have. He also encourages using the time together as a chance to bond. And if they're asking questions, that's actually a great opportunity to connect with them and to kind of tap into what emotional reactions they're having. Barakat says to keep answers simple and unbiased. I'm Claire Lane. People at risk of harming themselves can be placed on what's known as suicide watch. They're constantly monitored by a mental health professional in a hospital or treatment center. But in prisons, the person watching isn't always a trained professional or even a guard. Side Effects Public Media's Jake Harper and Lauren Bavis report the story from their podcast, Sick. And just a note for listeners, this story contains depictions of self-harm. Phone calls from home were a comfort for Charday Avery while she was incarcerated at the Indiana Women's Prison in Indianapolis. But a few years ago, it seemed like every call she got came with bad news. Her brother, who is also in prison, had been in a fight, and her dad had an accident. Avery felt like she needed counseling. She was in crisis. So late one night, she went to the only person she could ask for help, a correctional officer. They were like, um, well, it's too late. We don't have anybody here for you to talk to. And... Only way you're going to get off the dorm is if you say you're going to harm somebody or you're going to harm yourself. She didn't think she was suicidal, but she had no other options, so she said she was. I said, I'm not in my right state of mind and I feel like I'm going to hurt myself. Avery was put in a cold, padded cell with a window in the door. She fell asleep. When she woke up, there was someone outside her cell staring at her through the window. She was like, I just want to tell you that everything's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. It wasn't a doctor or a counselor. It was another incarcerated woman. There are dozens of people on suicide watch in Indiana's prisons every month. And the people doing the watching are often their peers, known as suicide companions. Indiana is one of several states that does suicide watch this way. There's Kansas, South Carolina, Michigan, and New Mexico. Christine Tartaro is a professor at Stockton University in New Jersey. She studies suicide in prisons and jails and says there are also similar programs outside the U.S. We've kind of gotten this idea of let's use our most abundant resource in the correction setting, which is inmates, because every prison has an abundance of inmates. Even so, Tartaro says companions aren't meant to replace trained mental health staff. It could be tempting for budget-minded corrections facilities to just say, oh, we have these inmates, therefore I don't need to hire a psychologist, I don't need that social worker. Mental health experts we spoke with seem divided on the use of incarcerated people as suicide companions. But Tartaro sees the benefits. Prisons are often understaffed, she says, especially when it comes to counselors. And people in crisis may trust their peers more than doctors or guards. These benefits for prisons can come with problems for the companions. Lori Logan was a companion for four years at the Indiana Women's Prison. There was a time where I had somebody who went to the shower And when she was brought out of the shower, somebody had actually hid a razor in the shower for her. I noticed her shoulder was moving, and I 
asked her what she was doing and next thing I know half the wall was bloody and I was screaming for an officer. Logan and other former suicide companions in Indiana told us they received little training to do the job and they struggled to cope with what they saw. Other women ingested their own bodily fluids and smeared them across the cell walls. The companions choked on pepper spray they say guards use to stop women from hurting themselves. Incarcerated women in particular can have histories of trauma, and being suicide companions traumatized them in a new way. What's more, former companions we spoke to told us they didn't always have a choice. They were told once they volunteered, they had to work as companions or face punishment. We asked the Indiana Department of Correction about this, and officials declined an interview. In an email, a spokeswoman disputed what multiple women told us. She said the companions receive training, can debrief with staff after hard shifts, and aren't penalized for asking for help. The spokeswoman also said the program is voluntary. After trying to quit multiple times, Logan eventually walked off an especially hard shift. I was watching the girl hurting herself in front of me, and I stood up. I threw my pen across the lock unit, and I said I quit. Logan wonders if she had continued as a suicide companion, whether she would have ended up on Suicide Watch herself. For Side Effects Public Media, I'm Jay Carper. And I'm Lauren Bathus. You can listen to the full second season of the podcast Sick at sickpodcast.org or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll stay with us more ahead on Statewide. You're listening to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Well, this week, the Illinois Department of Public Health Director, Dr. Ngazi Azike, said it was time to move on. She announced she'll be stepping down as the agency's director March 14th. Dr. Azike said she was happy to help people through the coronavirus pandemic. I am so blessed to have been able to bring some measure of, of comfort to Illinoisans, to quiet some of the chaos and infuse some calm. Zeke also thanked her family, saying now is the time to give them back a fraction of the attention they lavished on her. Governor J.B. Pritzker commended her empathy and called her a beacon of stability, giving COVID-19 updates in both English and Spanish at more than 160 news conferences. The assistant director of the Department of Public Health, Amel Tokars, will take over on an interim basis. A federal grand jury has indicted former Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan on racketeering and bribery charges. Madigan left office a year ago under the cloud of a federal investigation, but there were no charges until this week. Hannah Meisel is our State House editor, and she joins me now. Hannah, we knew an investigation had implicated Madigan many months ago, but a lot of people were wondering if this day would ever come. What does the indictment allege? It is a 106-page, 22-count indictment. You know, it, it alleges a lot of the same things that we have already known from related investigations, the kind of drip, drip, drip that we've seen over the last several years here in Illinois. It alleges that Mike Madigan used his many positions. You know, you have to recall that he wasn't just House Speaker. He was also chair of the Democratic Party of Illinois. You know, his longest served position is Democratic Committeeman of Chicago's 13th Ward, and he has built, you know, obviously quite the political operation out of, um, you know, his southwest side corner of the world there in Chicago. 
and also his position as co-chair of his property tax-focused law firm. The feds allege that Madigan used all of these positions to enrich him and to enrich, you know, those loyal to him. And the feds called it a criminal enterprise. So the U.S. attorney for the Northern District, he held a news conference on Wednesday to announce the indictment. Did he add anything else that uh, you mentioned a lot of this we already had heard about before? Anything new that he talked about? You know, his job is kind of to be tight-lipped, and it was a very rare uh, press conference. You know, uh, the only other time has been in the summer of 2020 when he announced the $200 million uh, deferred prosecution agreement against utility Commonwealth Edison, where a lot of these, uh, you know, same charges stem from. But I will, here, I'll play what, um, what John Lausch said. Unfortunately, this type of criminal conduct drastically undermines the public's confidence in our government. Simply put, it's not a good thing. As I've said before, we have a very stubborn public corruption problem here in Illinois. Rooting out and prosecuting public corruption has been and will always be a top priority of this office. You know, and he said the investigation is not over. And we might go back a year ago to when President Biden you know, got into office and other U.S. attorneys, obviously, you know, Lausch was a Trump appointee, but, you know, other U.S. attorneys were being asked for their letters of resignation. But uh, U.S. Senators Tammy Duckworth and Dick Durbin stepped in and asked the Biden Justice Department, please let John Lausch continue his investigation. You know, there are clearly a lot of loose ends that have not been tied up, and um, this is definitely one of them. So what has been the reaction that we've heard so far from uh, the various corners of state government? Yeah, I mean, this is a huge day in Illinois politics, one that certainly a lot of people thought would never come. So, you know, we've had reaction from all corners of the political world, Um, you know, reaction from Republicans. You know, if we, you know, rewind to 2020, Meg Madigan being named in that ComEd deferred prosecution agreement as public official A, it breathes a new life into a very old story here in Illinois politics that corruption is the name of the game. This is reaction from uh, House Minority Leader Jim Durkin, Republican from suburbs. We were stymied at every turn by those who would rather protect Mike Madigan than reform our state. For those Democrats, who protected Michael Madigan at the Special Investigation Committee, history will not be kind to you. And what uh, Durkin is talking about there is this group that was convened in the fall of 2020 to look into whether Madigan had done anything, conduct that's uh, unbecoming of of a legislator. It's kind of a squishy term. This, uh, you know, it ended in nothing really happening. Um, You know, the committee that was stacked with uh, Democrats who are very loyal to Madigan, um, didn't end up doing anything. But, you know, Republicans have been able to use this Madigan issue, this corruption issue, in a variety of ways for years now. And certainly this breathes new life into it. But, you know, Democrats too, I mean, if we recall, it was the only reason that Mike Madigan is not still a speaker for his historic 19th term right now is because Democrats in his own caucus that he spent decades building, you know, stood up to him. So this is uh, one of them. Uh, This is State Representative Kelly Cassidy of Chicago. This is about Speaker Madigan and what he did and and to, to what extent he influenced the culture of this building. The first thing you do when you get cancer is you cut out the cancer. Then you treat what happened afterwards. 
And we want to point out Madigan has not been convicted at this point. These are just allegations. But I think this the last few years have really tarnished what uh, what was always known as sort of that Madigan mystique, you know, that he was always in charge, that he was always in control, and that he had his finger on the pulse of what was going on. He wasn't going to be caught unprepared. That really makes these charges, I think, even more shocking, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, Madigan famously did not use email, cell phone. He preferred talking on the phone, talking face to face as little record as possible, honestly. Um, But, you know, throughout this entire investigation, we have seen that folks that were surrounding Mike Madigan, uh, like Mike McLean, a longtime confidant and top lobbyist for uh, ComEd, House Democrat, uh, who served alongside Madigan decades ago. It was him who was rather sloppy, honestly, and, uh, you know, put a lot of things in writing um, that, you know, I'm sure Madigan... Uh, thinks about a lot, Uh, you know, things that Mike McLean has put in writing. Mike McLean, by the way, indicted alongside of Madigan on Wednesday. McLean faces other charges in a related case when he was uh, charged alongside other uh, former ComEd lobbyists and officials in November of 2020. But, you know, this Madigan mystique, you know, I've been covering Illinois government politics for over eight years now, and I, I saw the I saw Madigan's decline, you know, after kind of his height of power. It was a very interesting snippet of his, you know, entire 50-year career in public service. He fought against Republican uh, Governor Bruce Rauner during the budget impasse. But then the wheels started coming off of Madigan's organization about four years ago when allegations surfaced of harassment within uh, Mike Madigan's political organization. And, you know, the common theme was that Mike Madigan was not on top of it. He was not, um, you know, acting responsibly as the leader. So for the last four years, things have been unraveling uh, slowly at first, but then pretty quickly. And so, uh, like I said earlier, a lot of people never thought this day would come, but here we are and we will see how this plays out. It could be honestly years before this gets to trial if it does. We'll continue to follow it. Hannah Meisel is the State House Editor for NPR Illinois. Hannah, thanks for talking with us. Thank you, Sean. A Rockford songwriter is taking the art to another level, or you could say another language. Yvonne Booz tells us more. This is spreading quickly. Denea Benfer is 19 years old. Her stage name is KBN, which stands for Known by None. She says the name comes from the idea that as an artist, she must be vulnerable, but she doesn't want people to see everything. I think um, everybody experiences that to different levels. Um, You know, you don't show your boss the side that you show your friends. You don't show your friends the side that you show your mom. You know, like we all have those different levels to ourselves, kind of like an onion. Benford says she's always loved poetry and wrote her first song when she was 12. Her mother bought her a pink guitar to help fuel her passion. My mom's client, um, her daughter, had broke it, had smashed it. And I was, <laughs> I was living, I was so living. And I couldn't, back then I couldn't understand why, but knowing the career path that I took, I can understand why it meant so much to me. Benford, who is also a twin, is the youngest of five girls. She says her older sisters flooded her ears with 90s R&B as a child, 
but listening to different bands sparked her love for all types of music. No matter the language, no matter the genre. Um, so the language barrier was never a problem for me. I've listened to Spanish music. I've listened to French music. She studied those two languages and is now learning Korean. To take things up a notch, she started writing in that language, initiating her desire to create Korean popular lyrics, also known as K-pop. With Korean, there's just so much emotion. And like I said, so many things can mean other things. So with puns and everything, and once you like get a person to dissect it, it's just mind-blowing. Benford says writing in this language is much different than writing in English. At first, she used a Korean app, which allowed a teacher to look over her creations. But now, she says, she doesn't need the extra help. Her favorite Korean artists are Dean and DPR, a hip-hop artist. Benford is Black, but says she has Korean individuals in her family. And they never, you know, spoke Korean to me. So I just knew that they were Korean. So... When I saw them again, you know, after pursuing the language, they appreciated that I was, you know, taking the time to learn. Her interest in this language caught the attention of a producer she met during a clubhouse chat. He invited her to write for a demo that he was putting together. Benford says another writer on the demo is a certified songwriter for the Korean boy band, BTS. Despite, you know, not being able to, to pitch successfully, my first... Uh, opportunity was with such a big writer. BTS is huge. She's planning on moving to Korea to study television and film. But before that, she wants to showcase her performance ability by releasing a couple of songs. She recently showed her talent during Making Magic Productions Network auditions that took place last month in Rockford, a city, she says, full of musical mentors leading the way for her life to shine. I'm Yvonne. Soon we'll be into planting season for many farmers. Today, though, we'll take a look at vertical farms. They stack rows of plants on top of each other. They're indoor farms that control the lighting, water, and temperature to create ideal conditions to grow fresh produce year-round, close to customers. But as Harvest Public Media's Katie Pikus reports, the industry relies on artificial lighting and has a large carbon footprint. Step into the indoor farm that the company Nebulum runs in Ames, Iowa. It smells like your typical supermarket produce aisle, the fresh, crisp scent of red butterhead lettuce and broccoli sprouts. Clayton Mooney is CEO. Where we're standing now in a thousand square foot space, we have 40,000 plants growing. Nebulum grows cherry tomatoes and a few varieties of leafy greens. The company keeps the room temperature between 65 and 68 degrees year-round, and Mooney says any water the plants don't use is recycled back into the system. For every month we grow plants in our growing equipment, we save one year's worth of water when compared to traditional methods. What's more, no pesticides, no herbicides, less land, but vertical farms mimic sunlight with artificial lights, and that takes energy. Nebulum's plants bathe under strips of LED lighting. They're on for 12 hours a day. Mooney says the company has tried different grow lights to find ones that use less energy. But artificial lighting is vertical farming's biggest problem. 
Jonathan Foley is the executive director of Project Drawdown, the nonprofit researches climate solutions. So the environmental benefits are largely washed away by um, the enormous energy it takes to grow this kind of food. Foley says vertical farming doesn't solve an environmental problem. He calls it a small niche market to grow fresh greens, especially in colder climates. But when it's pretending to be like an environmental salvation is where I'm going, wait a minute, you know, these uh, vertical farms take an enormous amount of material to build and energy to run. And we couldn't possibly feed a significant fraction of the world this way. On average, they release more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than conventional farming because of their energy use. Because vertical farms are centered in urban areas, the food travels shorter distances to customers. Researchers debate how much transportation figures into the overall emissions of food grown outdoors. Iowa State University's Kurt Rosentrader says it matters. The environmental impacts from transportation, generally speaking, are pretty on par or even slightly more than what happens in the field itself. Still, a pound of lettuce grown at Nebulum would have more than five times the carbon footprint of lettuce grown outdoors in Arizona and shipped to Ames, Iowa. But Ricky Stevens of urban farm consulting firm Agritecture says lighting efficiency has advanced over the years, and that's making vertical farming more financially viable. Vertical farms that are using the latest LED technology will use less energy, fewer kilowatt hours per pound of of final product compared to five or 10 years ago with the technology available then, but it's still, it's still quite high. Stevens says cultivating produce indoors makes it possible to grow food even as climate change brings on extreme heat, drought, and flooding. But the high energy consumption means it's also contributing to climate change. It's a bit of a conundrum for the industry and something that I, you know, we're hoping to see more transparency and honesty about. At Nebulum and Ames, CEO Clayton Mooney says the vertical farming industry recognizes it needs to trim its energy use, and it's making progress. But he says what Nebulum is doing now to grow its leafy greens is working. The company has more than 300 subscribers and delivers produce directly to their doorsteps. Our produce lasts four times longer than store-bought produce, and that's because it's the same-day harvest and delivery. We're really proud of that. Right now, our average harvest delivery time is just 180 minutes. Quick delivery, fresh local produce, but a bigger carbon footprint. Katie Pikus, Harvest Public Media. got more ahead here on Statewide. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Still ahead, how high school students who speak multiple languages have been getting the word out about the COVID vaccine. Up next, Illinois' wealthiest person is financing a big challenge this fall to Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker. Billionaire Ken Griffin points to surging crime as one reason to get Pritzker out of office. 
But Griffin is now getting criticized himself on the issue. That's after WBEZ's Dave McKinney went digging inside the hedge fund tycoon's financial empire. Last October, Griffin spoke to the Economic Club of Chicago. He's the owner of the Citadel Hedge Fund and its corporate cousin, Citadel Securities. Griffin bemoaned how the city had deteriorated since he'd last appeared before the group. Since I last spoke in 2013, 25,000 of my fellow Chicagoans have been shot. From there, Griffin needled one person for Chicago's surging crime wave. And it is a disgrace that our governor will not insert himself into the challenge of addressing crime in our city. It is a disgrace. But if you look at Griffin's two financial companies, they disclosed to federal security regulators earlier this month that they own more than $86 million worth of shares in gun and ammunition manufacturers as of December. Those manufacturers included gunmakers Smith & Wesson and Sturm Ruger & Company. What's more, WBEZ asked Chicago police for five years worth of violent crime data and the brand names of weapons tied to those crimes. That showed that roughly one in four guns recovered from Chicago homicides since 2017 was made by those two gun companies. Lance Williams is an expert on Chicago street gangs and violence at Northeastern Illinois University. Until we address those issues, those larger systemic issues like investments in gun manufacturing, we're not going to solve this problem on the streets. Zia Ahmed is a Citadel spokesman. He says that there's no correlation between guns used in violent crimes and Citadel's investments and holdings in gun and ammunition companies. Ahmed describes those investments and holdings as, quote, smaller than infinitesimal in light of the size of our firm. And he notes Chicago police are armed with guns from some of the same companies. Ahmed also says Griffin doesn't get involved in particular stock choices and says Citadel Securities is, quote, obligated to offer investors gun and ammunition stocks to buy and sell. But experts interviewed by WBEZ say nothing is forcing Citadel to be active in the controversial gun and ammunition sector. Tyler Galosh is a former lawyer for the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Based on their holdings, it appears that they have pretty significant engagement and exposure to the sector, and that's a, that's a choice they're making. As for Griffin himself, he steered some of his wealth to anti-violence endeavors like the University of Chicago Crime Lab, which received a $10 million grant from him in 2018. More recently, Griffin has put $20 million into the campaign of Aurora Mayor Richard Irvin. Irvin is one of five Illinois Republicans seeking to unseat Pritzker and has been hitting the governor hard on crime. Asked about Citadel's holdings, an Irvin campaign spokeswoman told WBEZ that Griffin is free to invest in whatever industry he chooses. And Citadel spokesman says that, quote, trying to tie our tiny, tiny holdings to somehow contributing to violent crime in Chicago is, respectfully, quite a stretch. But Father Michael Flager, an anti-violence advocate and pastor at St. Sabina's Church on Chicago's South Side, says Griffin's statements on crime don't square with Citadel's business strategies. You absolutely cannot be a voice about crime and uh, murder or shootings on our streets when your company is a major investor in gun manufacturers. Um, it's absolutely hypocritical. Flager called on Citadel to scrub its stock sheets of gun and ammunition makers, but Citadel won't say if it intends to maintain or change its financial portfolio. This is Dave McKinney.
We're following up on our recent lead poisoning series, WNIJ's Peter Medlin talked with Leslie Wallace of the Winnebago County Health Department and joined later in the conversation by Ryan Kirch, also of the department, about services for kids with lead poisoning and its federally funded mitigation program. Peter Medlin speaking with Ryan Kirch and Leslie Wallace with the Winnebago County Health Department. The County Health Department gets involved in the process once a person tests positive for lead, correct? Yes, the provider will send a positive test to the state and then that's how we get that. And then in Winnebago County, about how many people a year are you alerted by the state and then you reach out to help with? COVID kind of made things a little different. Not as many kids were getting tested, but it's definitely amped up now that people are going back to the doctors. So I think we had around 160 cases the past year. Okay. Can you, someone give me an overview of what support and guidance can the health department offer people who do test positive? Yeah, so when a child tests positive and we're notified, it initiates like a series of events. It initiates case management on RN. And what they do is they contact the families to educate them about lead poisoning prevention, like common sources of lead exposure in the home, proper nutrition, hand washing, cleaning the home, things like that. And you're helping them identify the source of lead in their home too? So that's the next step. That's the environmental end. That's kind of what I manage. So when a child's positive, a lead nurse will let us know and we will contact the family as well to initiate a lead inspection. And the lead inspection includes like a surface by surface investigation of the home to determine if there's any presence of lead in the home. And if there is, determine if it's a lead hazard. Do you say more often than not in a situation where you're going into a home of someone who's test positive that you do identify a lead hazard? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the most common source of lead exposure is lead-based paint, and we usually find um, some type of lead hazard in the home. If we don't find it in the home, then, you know, part of the case management is asking where else does the child go? Do they go to a daycare, grandparents' house? But you would say for the most part, the majority of cases, you are able to identify a hazard in the house, and most commonly that is uh, lead-based paint? Absolutely. And is there a, a spot in the house, say uh, windowsills or? Yeah, a lot of um, our older home stock has original double hung windows. And if those are painted with lead paint, there's such a friction source that whenever the windows are opened and closed, it creates lead dust that gets onto the windowsill and even possibly the floor. Friction surfaces, windows, doors, things like that are definitely a common source of lead exposure. We're concerned about chronic exposure to lead. We want to try to get the child away from that lead exposure as soon as possible. Sometimes just cleaning the window sills, you know, is enough in the moment um, to lower that lead blood level. Um, but we do, as a health department, we have a grant right now funded by HUD, which is our lead-based paint hazard control grant, where families, our tenants, and landlords can apply. And if they qualify, we can come in and fix the lead hazards for them. Most of the residents that we talked to, not only in Winnebago County, people said that they felt like there was a lack of guidance from government agencies when it comes to you know, lead exposure and poisoning. And I'm just curious from your perspective, maybe why do you think that perception exists still? A lot of people know that lead-based paint was banned in 1978 for residential use. 
And I think there is just this kind of assumption that lead poisoning went away with that. Uh, and that's very much not the case. Just because we banned lead paint a few decades back doesn't mean it disappeared from the homes it's still in. So that's where it comes down to that education. For families who do have a lead poison child, yeah, we, we reach out to them and we work with them very closely. And I would say that, yeah, if anybody has any concern uh, about their child's exposure, our best recommendation is talk to your physician and have that lead test done. And if you have questions after that, call your local health department. Should there be any state legislation or anything that could help people dealing with lead in their homes or even in their bodies or make the process easier to help them receive services? Is there anything that the health department is advocating for like that? Um, we're always advocating for more funding. Um, we've had our HUD grant for several years now, and it is a proactive program as well. So you don't have to have a lead poison child to qualify for the program to have a lead inspection done and the lead hazards mitigated. Anyone can apply and have that done before, you know, any lead poisoning can happen. So people that suspect that there could be lead in their homes can reach yeah, out to the health department? Yeah, they live in a home built before 1978. And if they have a child under the age of six living there or visiting, and it is geared towards low-income families. Um, if any of those aspects qualify them, then we can go out there and do that. I'm Peter Medlin, and that was Leslie Wallace of the Winnebago County Health Department. She and Ryan Kirch, the department, spoke with me about services for kids with lead poisoning and its lead mitigation program. Some small towns in the Midwest are growing, due in part to an influx of new immigrants. That includes some who speak rare languages. And side effects public media's Carter Barrett reports it takes some creativity to make vaccines accessible to those communities. High school senior Miranda Sebastian speaks Chu. That's an indigenous Maya language, spoken by an estimated 90,000 people in Guatemala. Here in Chu, she describes the information she shared at a local COVID-19 vaccine clinic she helped out with last year in the southern Indiana town of Seymour. Sebastian also speaks Spanish. The school's ESL director, Ana de Gante, translated for her as we spoke. She said also it is very important to uh, continue use uh, masks because our health is very important and it's very important to know that this is something serious and that we need to take care of others. In Seymour, some people speak both Spanish and Chu, but others, like Sebastian's mom, only speak Chu. Seymour is a growing town of about 22,000. In recent years, the town has seen more people immigrating from Guatemala. Over the past decade, the percentage of Hispanic or Latino residents here more than doubled to about one in four. So when it came time to set up for a vaccine clinic, the Gante recruited some of her Chu-speaking high school students to help translate. She says some of them want to work in healthcare in the future. They feel so good to be able to help. One of the students, Fabiana, says that feeling means like, oh, I help them. You know, I think they feel proud 
I think they feel like they can be really great resource for the community. Bethany Doherty heads the local hospital's efforts to engage with the town's Hispanic community. She launched a task force in 2020, initially aimed at distributing COVID information. And just ask, what can we do? What education can we provide? How do we provide it? How do we make it accessible, understandable? So they used WhatsApp, paper flyers, and eventually video messages. Doherty says they worked closely with local churches in the school district. I think it coming from a source that's familiar to them, but with the trustworthy information, you know, from a hospital, it just, it carries more weight when it's coming from a family member or a close friend that you trust. Yvette Vasquez is on the Seymour Task Force. She's lived here for over 20 years. In Honduras, she was a medical doctor, but she can't practice in the U.S. Still, she's trusted in her town and says misinformation on platforms like YouTube is a big problem. YouTube is... (laughs) It's awful. It's good, but sometimes it's misinformation, a lot of misinformation. I think when you educate the person in the right way, they are more open to accept the vaccination. Some critics say immigrant kids shouldn't be expected to translate health information for their families or communities. Yamile Molina is an assistant professor studying health disparities at the University of Illinois at Chicago. You know, there's a lot of conversations around children of immigrants, right, or of refugee families who um, have this really interesting dynamic where they suddenly become the interpreter, right? Mm -hmm. That can be challenging. That can be um, impactful for families. But Molina said it's a nuanced issue and perfect shouldn't be the enemy of the good. Molina says best practices for outreach to minority communities include efforts like the ones being made in Seymour. And if high schoolers are willing to participate and have people checking in on them, it can be mutually beneficial. At last summer's clinics, hundreds of Seymour's Hispanic residents, including many Guatemalan immigrants, came for the vaccine. The task force is now evaluating the need for a booster clinic. I'm Carter Barrett, SideFX Public Media. That's all the time we have for Statewide. We'll be back next week. We'll have more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. A reminder that all of our shows are available at nprillinois.org. Just look for Statewide. Our podcast can be found through the NPR One app. And drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations.